from digitiki.com. Dear, I do wish people wouldn't drop by without letting us know that they're coming. The place looks like a hut. It is a rather crude cabana. Come in, come in, boy. We thought with a prowler in the neighborhood, we'd better not take any chances. So Thurston put out these bars. <laughs> That's what we need, some neighborhood bars. <laughs> Welcome back for another visit here at The Quiet Village. I am your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from digitiki.com, broadcasting from the heart of The Quiet Village. And I have a really great show for you. I have coming to the hut in-house, or via satellite, I should say, the one, the only Darren Long, who is an accomplished musician. Uh, leader of the band The Tiki Delights. He is also an accomplished songwriter, accomplished artist, and uh, we're going to talk about his new book. He's an accomplished author. He has done a book on the Omni Hut in Nashville, Tennessee, or outside of Nashville, which uh, is a very interesting place. I didn't know a lot about till I talked to Darren, so that's going to be a lot of fun. That's coming up. Also in this show, this is going to be kind of a little bit of a mashup. I'm going to actually hit the Wayback Machine. We're going to listen to some very, very early uh, stuff. So I I am really blessed to have a lot of uh, these listeners that turn me on to a lot of stuff. And I've had uh, quite a few listeners who've introduced me to new artists, uh, new music, not just tiki genre or Hawaiian genre, but a whole bunch of different genres. Um, one in particular, Kenneth C., who writes in quite a bit. Kenneth, you know who you are. I know you're listening. Thank you very much. Um, I, I have been turned on to this um, site of cylinder recordings. Now, for those of you who don't know what cylinders are, they are the precursor to records. So before we had flat vinyl or wax records, we had round cylinders. So if you picture basically kind of like what looks like a record wrapped around uh, about the size of a, a aluminum can, you know, a soda can, that's how uh, music was recorded. Um, in 1877, Thomas Edison recorded sound for the first time on a cylinder. It was with tin foils. If you think about it, 1877, before that, there was no way to capture and playback sound. Edison kind of dropped the invention after he showed it to everybody and wowed the world with it and went on to um, invent the electric light bulb. No small feat. Then he came back and perfected the cylinders and, and started using wax and the recording industry was was basically born. And these things were quite popular. A lot of genres of music, a lot of music from around the world and, and places that people just couldn't visit at the time. Um, particularly Hawaii. So the music of Hawaii was one of the popular genres for these cylinder recordings. And I have been turned on to this online database from the University of California at Santa Barbara. They have a web page just devoted to digitizing these wax cylinders and pre preserving the audio. And one of the genres is Hawaiian music. And there is some really early stuff. Some of these recordings date back to as far as 1909. 
So now I'm going to play for you two of um, two recordings from that cylinder collection. This is this is one of the earliest ones on the archive, and I don't know if these are the absolute earliest Hawaiian music recordings, but this is 1909, and that's pretty darn long ago if you think about that. Um, that is. 1909 that's what two years before the titanic was launched and sunk uh you know before world war one that's pretty long ago a lot has changed since then so here is an artist by the name of actually the band by the name of toots pakas hawaiians doing their 1909 rendition of akahi hoi and I'm no expert in the Hawaiian language, but I believe that means something about a boy returning or a boy coming back from somewhere. I'm not sure, but here it is.
Tropical climb where they do the hula hula dance. I fell in love with the chocolate dove while doing the funny funny dance. This poor little kid, why she never did a bit of loving before. So I made up my mind that I struck a find the only girl I ever did adore. Well, 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 I love a pretty little hop a hoppy hula girl. She's a candy kid to wriggle. Hula girl, she will surely make you giggle. Hula girl with an awful little wiggle. Someday I'm gonna try to make this hop a holly. Girl in mine, girl in mine. Cause all the time I'm dreaming of her. My hop a holly hula girl. With your dear little peach Where the waves are rolling in so high Holding her hand while you sit on the sand You promise you'll win her heart or die You're starting to tease You give her a squeeze Her heart is all in a whirl If you get in a pinch Go to its a cinch When spooning with the hula girl Well, 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 I love A pretty little hop a holly Hula girl, she's a candy kid to wriggle Hula girl, she will surely make you giggle Hula girl with an naughty little wiggle Someday I'm gonna try to make this hop a holly Girl in mine, girl in mine Cause all the time I'm dreaming of her My hop a holly hula girl Well, 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 I love a great little hop a She's a candy kid to wriggle. Hula girl. She will surely make you giggle. Hula girl. With an odd little wiggle. Someday I'm gonna try to make this hop a holly girl in mine, girl in mine. Cause all the time I'm dreaming of her. My hop a holly hula girl. My hop a holly hula girl. Okay, right there. I just did two versions. That was Happy Holy Hula Girl by Alfred Apaka from probably from the 50s. I don't have the date right in front of me. Right before that was Happy Holy Hula Girl by Helen Louise and uh, Paulo Kiko Ferreria, also known as Frank Ferreira, from an Edison wax cylinder from 1916. So that that dates Happy Holy Hula Girl, the song, at least to 1916. And kicking off that set was an Edison wax cylinder from 1909. Uh, the tune is Hoi by Toots Paka's Hawaiians. And I and I actually put the two Hapahaole Hula Girl songs together to show you the evolution of Hawaiian music. Because those two wax cylinders from 09 and 1916, the, the steel guitar had not yet been invented. 
So you can hear the evolution. It's kind of kind of fascinating. And it actually, while I was listening to those tunes, it kind of gave me the idea that uh, maybe in the future I'll do a show on the, um, the invention of the steel guitar and the evolution of that into Hawaiian music. It's just... It's just fascinating, and that that is, um, we just had the Wayback Machine right there. Now I want to move on to another online archive, and this is one that I really want to talk about. This one is really excited. Some of you may know about this, but I doubt many do, and, and actually a couple of listeners have turned me on to this one. It is the Exotica 45 project and it is a labor of love from a collector and dj by the name of dj little danny now this particular site is a collection of a hundred exotica 45s you heard that right every single one of the 45s is digitally preserved and available for listening on the website and this archive really is fantastic. I absolutely love it. There are photos of 45 record labels that for each one of them, so you can actually see the label. Um, actually, some of them that had sleeve work, uh, that is also there. Um, sadly, as I'm recording this, their website is down. Uh, it looks like some sort of issue with the site, and I hope it will be back up soon. I will have a link to it so if if the link isn't quite working don't despair i hope it is going to be up but i wanted to do a feature on this archive since it's so cool the the exotica 45s here are not your typical martin denny stereotypical exotica tunes a lot of these have a grittier more early rock influence i guess i mean i don't know what you would call this version i constantly referred to it as garage exotica for lack of a better term um it has that younger less polished sound to it um and it's really quite interesting and the sounds are more jungle than that uber relaxed sound of martin denny lyman rains um and the like don't get me wrong there's actually uh some biggies represented here there's a 45 from ema sumac there's a 45 from mar um from uh, Les Baxter as well. But there's a lot of names that I personally was not familiar with, and it's it's really interesting. Um, so let's let's start it off with a, with a let's start it with kind of a a pretty good sized set of some of these tunes to give you an idea of what's there. Um, it turns out I had a few of these tunes, so I'm gonna play you the ones that I have. Um, but again, all of these are 45s that have been digitized. So this first one is one of my personal favorites. It's called Voodoo Kiss, and it's right here on The Quiet Village. This is the jungle drum, a magic charm, and I've become, yes, I've become your slave. Your voodoo kiss is the jungle heat that fills my heart with a frenzied beat, that voodoo beat I crave. You touch me. And the throbbing of the jungle drums begin You torture me 
I'm a rag doll Stuck full of pins Kissed by the ghostly light, the voodoo moon, the still of the night, one kiss, your voodoo kiss, one kiss, your voodoo kiss, one kiss, your
right there um, from the Exotica 45 Project website. You can check it out yourself. It's exoticaproject.com. And all 145s are there, including um, scans of the labels so you can see them. You can even do, um, you can even search the genre by just ones with jungle sounds or just songs with voodoo uh, references. It's really very cool. And if you happen to go there and find the uh, email for DJ Little Danny, please email him. Tell him you like it. It's, he did a wonderful, wonderful job. So now let's move on to our interview with Darren Long. And I am going to play two songs before we start the interview to kind of introduce you to Darren Long and his band, The Tiki Delights. This this first song is called, I love the title, Twist of Lyman. And then it's followed by a more surfy tune called Stormy Outrigger with The Tiki Delights and Darren Long right here in the Quiet Village.
Okay, so here comes the interview. I am here in the hut, well, via satellite, I guess, with Darren Long, who is um, a real renaissance guy, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, He is an accomplished musician, accomplished songwriter, uh, leader of the band The Tiki Delights. He's an accomplished artist. And he is also the author of a book on the Omni Hut, which is a place that I don't know that much about, but I've seen pictures and I'm really interested to find out about this place. Aloha, Darren. Welcome to the Quiet Village. Hey, aloha to you. And thank you for inviting me on finally. It's been great. I've played your stuff on the show. And of course, it's on uh, Quiet Village Radio. So I'm happy to finally have you on. So... Before we talk about the book, let's let's talk about your music endeavors. You live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is like the one of the music capitals of the world. So right. uh, tell me what it's like to do tiki music in Nashville. Well, <laughs> it is interesting because, you know, originally I, I moved here from California, from Northern California, and to get involved in the country music scene. And I did that pretty steadily for, you know, 10 more than 10 years, probably 15 years. But uh, I was getting kind of tired of the the rat race because it's a real business town. And uh, at some point I started writing other, getting back to other genres of music that I loved. Uh, retro pop stuff, like I love 60s music, the Beatles. Uh, I rediscovered Tiki and Exotica music in about 2009. And I thought, you know, I, I need to kind of dabble in this. This is something I understand. I grew up on it. So I started dabbling in other types of music and still kind of keeping the country thing going. But eventually I kind of dropped out of the country thing in 2013. And by then I'd already had two CDs out of the Tiki Exotica type stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it is kind of unusual. There's, there's really not, there's the Tiki scene is growing here. There's a few bars, tiki bars that have opened up, commercial places, but uh, it's still not obviously like California, like San Francisco or in L.A. or San Diego. We were in Atlanta uh, a couple of months ago, and there's, of course, there's that event up in New York, and of course, and like you said, the Florida, the Hukilao, and yeah. But uh, there's not much going on in Nashville, but because of the uh, because of the internet, really. That's the beauty of it, that I realized that we could record here in Nashville and we could talk to people like you and Coop Cooper on Cocktail Nation and get on CD Baby and just get out all over the world from sitting here at my computer, you know, which is amazing. (laughs) In the old days, I grew up in San Francisco playing in the bars, the Irish bars. And in those days, you had to pay your dues. There was nothing else going on. There was no Internet. You just played live and you hope somebody discovered you and all that stuff. So are you still working on, on, uh, on music? Oh yeah. You know, constantly I'll go through a phase where I'm working on books and I'll kind of ignore the music for a little bit. Then I'll come back around full circle and I'll work on the music and put the books off for a little bit. It's kind of hard for me to do both and still, you know, do my normal day stuff. But I'm always working on music and I'm always, I've got, that's the ironic thing is you're a musician. You understand that. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a backlog of music that I wrote 
I mean, a lot, I have a couple albums worth of tiki music that I wrote five years ago. Oh, wow. I just, I just need to get to the, to the point where we can get back in the studio. I'm working in the studio all the time with some other projects, but there's plenty of material to get back in there. All right. Well, get hopping on that, will you? <laughs> yeah. I'm have something for you, you know. Yeah, well, I'm here. But more lounge. I want to talk about the book though. The the Omni Hut. You just you wrote this book. Actually, I'm a little late to the game because I think you wrote it what two years ago it came out or a year ago? Well, actually, just a just a little about about a year ago. Okay, a year ago. Okay. Um, it took a year and a half to write it, to research it, do all the interviews with the family and and things. And I, ironically, the book came out, I think in March of 2018, in April, they had their first little speed bump and they had to shut the restaurant down until July. It didn't reopen. I think it was until July. So is, it is open now, right? It's operational. No, actually, actually they kind of went into a tailspin. They, um, were having constantly having problems with staffing, as a lot of restaurants these days are having, just keeping good people. And uh, they, they were always had a huge amount of business. It was never the problem that they weren't getting business. It's just they didn't have the staff. No. And so, uh, she started cutting back. She cut out dinner for about six months and she tried just doing a lunch only thing. Things started to kind of decline. And by October of 2018, she just told me one day, she said, Well, that's it. We're closing at the end of the week mm. for good. And it was really heartbreaking because this place is in Smyrna, Tennessee, about 25 miles south of Nashville. And it had been open since 1960. So there's a lot of families and generations that have been uh, patrons of this place. And it, it, the last few days brought out just hundreds and hundreds of people wow. wanted to come and have lunch and share memories and stuff for the last time. It was still kind of hard to get over. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, 1960, that's, that's been there for a long time. Um, they had, so, they had a 58 year run. That's, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Tell me about this place because I'll admit I've, I've only seen a few pictures of the interior. It was started in 1960, as I said, by a, a guy who was a retired air force major and uh, Major James Walls, he was raised in Iowa, and he was uh, joined the Army Air Corps before World War II. He was actually stationed in Hawaii when Pearl Harbor hit. He oh. survived Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attack. And but while he was there in uh, stationed in Hawaii, he, he loved Chinese food, and he learned how to. He had a real fascination about cooking and getting recipes. So he started hanging out in some of the Chinese restaurants there in Honolulu, learned how to cook. And for the next 20 years, while he was in the Air Force, he traveled all over the world, kept cooking and gathering recipes. And people used to say, hey, Jim, you know, when you retire, you should open a restaurant. Well, that's kind of basically what they did. He and his wife, when he retired here in um, Smyrna, Tennessee, they decided, well, okay, let's take the plunge. We're going to build a little place, very modest-looking place. Hey, you know, they they had great food and great service. And yeah. like I said, they stuck around for 58 years, which is – there aren't too many tiki restaurants left 
anymore that have lasted that long. Right. There, there really aren't. And to find some that are, you know, that were running that were, you know, from 60, that's pretty good. So you mentioned she, um, um, was it a relative of the, the owner that was still running? Well, yeah. You know, that's the unique thing too about the Omni Hut is it stayed in a family, the same family all these years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the father ran it for about 25 years. And all the kids grew up working in the restaurant. They started as bus boys and cooks. They worked their way up to cooks and some type of management. The daughter took over full time about 30 years ago. And she, so basically, she ran the restaurant for a good 30 years mm-hmm. owned and managed it. And, um, I think, frankly, she said she was just kind of burned out about it. She was turning 65, and she's been doing it for 30 years and just struggling with all the issues. Of, uh-huh. And she finally said, you know what? I'm just I'm throwing in the towel. I'm just kind of – and nobody else in the family wanted to step up, kind of take things over, which is too bad. So it closed really recently then. Yes. Actually, it was like October 12th of 2018 was the last, last day, and my oh. wife and I were there. Oh. It was it was kind of heartbreaking, but uh, you know, it's one of those things where you could say, well, maybe with a little more business savvy, things could have changed, or somebody else could have stepped in, or. But I don't know. The restaurant business was going through some changes back here. There were several several places that closed because they couldn't keep their staff. I've even heard my sister is a chef in San Francisco, and she said. Same thing. That it's really hard to keep people on staff. There's such a turnover. Yeah, the restaurant, and I would say to me at least, I know nothing about it, but it seems the restaurant business, even more so than the bar business, is difficult to just maintain. Yeah, it is. You know, and people would always simplify it, and they'd say, "Well, just come on out to the Omni Hut and just support them." And it's like, well, you know, that was never the problem. They never had a lack of business. In fact, they had a too much business. They just didn't have the staff, the staffing, to really handle the situation. That's a shame. And, um, yeah, it really is. It's, But, you know, a lot of people, their feelings were kind of hurt. And, you know, they, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of ironic that the book, the book came out and at the end of the book, it's very optimistic about, you know, at that point it was 57 years. And it's like, here's to another 57 years, you know. And, and uh, nobody knew that, expected that it was going to end so soon. So mm-hmm. when I did my uh, book presentation down at Atlanta, I now have a whole section of the presentation that deals with the last couple, last few months of and the closing and all that. Mm-hmm. Because it's not in the book, and I decided I'm not going to go back and amend the book. I'm just going to leave it where it closes out on a high point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Beatles, the Beatles or something. You know, you you don't want to talk about the breakup. You want to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I've seen pictures online, and it it looked really cool. It um, now if I'm not mistaken, they had like uh, black light murals yeah what? yeah they had a lot of had a lot of black light stuff and then you know the artificial flowers uh-huh. they got hit with the black light 
I mean, the place was just loaded with stuff. Lots of tiki decor. I have a whole chapter on tiki decor that they gathered over the years. I mean, it took many years to kind of fill it up. And then the, um, the second oldest son, George, when he retired, he decided he wanted to be a tiki carver. And he's, he's very, he's a very great tiki carver. And he would, he would carve tiki's that would end up in the restaurant. There was always at least 20 of his carved tiki's in the restaurant at any time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got to be good friends with him and, He's a real neat guy. He's retired in the seventies, still carving. And when the Omni had closed, they had, they've had a couple of indoor yard sales mm -hmm. and he's, he sold a lot of his tiki's and things, but uh, it was just a really neat place. It was just, especially here in Tennessee. Yeah. You don't associate tiki with Tennessee. And in fact, when, when they started in 1960, there was only one other Chinese restaurant in the whole state and that was in Memphis at the time, uh -huh. if you, which is hard to believe because you you're if you're in L.A. and I grew up in San Francisco, you know, with Chinatown and all uh -huh. that. And there's, you know, there's probably like, what, 10,000 Chinese restaurants in San Francisco. <laughs> right. But it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine two Chinese restaurants in the whole state of Tennessee at that time. Wow. So it was it was kind of a crazy idea. And that's one reason that's really unique that why it lasted so long that. Even when he was, when Jim Major Walls was trying to get a loan to build a restaurant, they said, well, what are you, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to sell Chinese food. And they're like, uh, are you crazy or something in Tennessee? <laughs> so he got turned down several times and people said, well, you know, this won't last six months, but it lasted 58 years. So yeah. that's kind of a cool thing. It was popular at the time. I mean, you know, that was... Yeah, you know, the timing was good. Like I said, the um, several of the other famous iconic places were already opened or opened around the same time. The Kahiki, I think, opened in 61 or 63. Jeff yeah. Chanel would probably correct me on that, but kind of the same time period. But, you know, there really wasn't a tiki scene in, in Tennessee, which is ironic. It's uh -huh. like if this wasn't California or Florida. It would have been different. But even in spite of that, they they did really well. People, locals, and people from Air Force Base and um, country music stars, yeah. people embraced, embraced embraced the cuisine, just became diehard fans of it over the years. It it sounds like such a cool place, and it sounds like it really was an oasis in the middle of of some place. You know, like it, it was a rarity, basically. Yeah, definitely. And uh, when you went inside it, like all great tiki places, you, when you go inside, there's no windows. You you really get lost in it. We would always enjoy that. We were regulars, I'd say, you know, as regular as we could be for 10 years. <laughs> and um, it was fun, like in the middle of the wintertime back here, where it can get pretty nasty and we, we, get, we don't get a lot of snow. But the height of December... To go down to the Omni Hut was really neat because it'd be freezing outside and you go inside and you just, for two hours, you forget you're in Tennessee in the wintertime and it's just this tropical paradise, you know, and yeah, real total escapism like you, you would expect from the tiki scene. And they, they pulled that off for 58 years, you know, and the, the cool thing was, I make this point when I gave the book presentation, I said, and you have to understand that 
Omnihad did not have live music and they did not have a tiki bar. Really? Which is very ironic because when you look at the Maikai or Bali High, those places kind of, you know, 99% of their fame is with their tropical drinks. And right, things. yeah. But because of the Tennessee liquor laws, there was no booze allowed. You could bring your, your own in and that bring your own booze thing became the policy for all those years, which was kind of neat. Huh. So you could bring in bring in your own bottle of rum and bottle of wine and you could bring in your own. George makes a great Mai Tai and he would bring in a pitcher of Mai Tais for us, you know. <laughs> and um, so it was kind of cool. You know, it's like, you know, you got to be pretty good to survive all those years without a tiki bar and without live music. Yeah, so, see, that's something I didn't know because I just assumed that it, it had a tiki bar and and you know, had a, you know, maybe their own house cocktail or something, but they didn't. That's fascinating. Right. You know? Yeah, it really is. And some people, a lot of people are still surprised. I had a buddy, Facebook friend, who's, he's actually the bass player for Boston, the rocker. Oh, wow. And he, and he lives up in Massachusetts. I kind of peddle in some of the Omni Hut memorabilia stuff. Like I've got a bunch of the menus and, Kind of things like that, actually, that their own their homemade teriyaki sauce. Anyway, he bought a menu, and he he um, Facebooked me and said, "Hey, where's the drink menu?" <laughs> and I said, I "said Oh man, didn't you know there's there was no tiki bar in this place?" He's like, "Well, I can't believe there's no tiki bar." And I said, "That's how they survived for 58 years, no bar. That just on the reputation for the food and the service." That is mind blowing because. It really is. You know, because the, the tiki is such a cocktail culture, almost first and <laughs> foremost beyond anything, even more yeah. than the tiki's itself. It's a, you know, it's cocktails. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I learned that I learned that firsthand when my wife and I went down to this Inuwaili event in uh, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It was their first, first event. And uh, <laughs> I make the, the joke about the bartending Tiki event drew 200 people, but my book, my book presentation and Tim Glasner's book presentation drew like 15 people. <laughs> and I said, I said, you know, honey, I think these people are more into drinking than they are in uh, learning about the history. So, and they definitely had a good time, but they weren't, weren't as much interested in the his, history part of it and all that. Well, that you know, that's a shame because that, that is, at least mm-hmm. to me, I think is some of the most fascinating stuff is the history of some of these places, and uh, you know, especially to find out that this place survived that long without a bar. That's, I guess, that says a lot about the rest of us that drink too much, probably. <laughs> but hey, I've got the idea for your next uh, presentation when you when you do a presentation on. You, you should tout that you're going to be uh, also serving the Omni Hut cocktail, and you should give everybody glasses of water. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, the, the ironic thing is, in, um, let's see, what was it, 2010, when they had their 50th anniversary, uh-huh. for some reason, Polly decided, and rightly so, to have a a special tiki mug commissioned, even though they don't serve tiki drinks <laughs> and, and you know, your buddy out there, um, Holden and, um, tiki farm. Oh yeah. She had a commission through them and, um, they're quite collectible now. 
but we had two two colors of the tiki mug and they would serve this uh she made this hawaiian fruit tea mm-hmm. a lot of people would get the fruit tea in the in the mug and people would just add rum to that kind of a deal but so they had it they had these tiki mugs from 2010 and then in 2016 i believe george the tiki carver son designed a little coconut mug that tiki farm did as well i've seen that coconut are, mug it's cute. Yeah, those are collectible too. Wow. So uh, people ask me all the time about that stuff. They're like, hey, can I get one of those mugs or can I get a bottle of teriyaki sauce? Or We actually took a case of teriyaki sauce down to the landman. <laughs> Were they famous for their teriyaki sauce, huh? Yeah, actually it was their own in-house recipe that Major Walls got when they were stationed in um, outside of Chicago in the 50s. There was a next-door neighbor named Mr. Wong. That's the only name they have on it, Mr. Wong. <laughs> Mr. Wong had this famous teriyaki recipe that Major Walls borrowed, and and they made it in-house all these years, and they would sell it, sell bottles of it. At one time, they had them in the supermarkets and things back here. So I bought a I bought a case of it because it's really good. It's homemade, and it's phenomenal. I'd probably charge like $50 a bottle if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you Or you could... Get licensed and re- redo it. Omni Hut's original. Yeah, well, you know, she did, uh, Polly did something smart. She hasn't sold the restaurant, but she wants to hold on to it and maybe rent it out to another restaurant. There was, at one point, there was some interest from a Thai restaurant. Uh-huh. They would just rent, rent it from her, which means she could go in and use the commercial kitchen to make the teriyaki sauce and uh-huh. keep it going. So I, that's the last time I talked to her. That's kind of where she was headed, that she wasn't going to sell the place, but just maybe rent it out to another restaurant and keep keep ownership of it. I, I need to talk to her. She was at the tiki party that we went to, our friends here that have the home tiki bar. Uh-huh. Phenomenal. You, know, you remember in the old days when Tiki Magazine had that totally tiki-fied section where they'd oh, always yeah. feature somebody's home bar? Yeah. Yeah, well, Justin and Justin's and Moe's, Mo Bird, that's their names. It's great to see in Nashville. We were cracking up. We were over there. We're like, pinch me. Am I really in Nashville? (laughs) (laughs) That way, you know, they've done a good job if you actually feel like you're a million miles from where you really are. Oh, yeah. He even had this thing. He would love this. It was it's like a TV screen and it has like panes in it. So it looks like a window Uh in the background was a tropical scene with waves crashing. So it looks like you're looking out at you're looking out the window at at the ocean and the waves crashing and stuff. Oh. I can't be in Nashville. This is too cool. So. <laughs> well, you know, in the wintertime, they just turn the heater up a little more so it's hot. Makes you feel <laughs> like you're actually in uh, in a desert island somewhere. Let's talk about your other art here for a second. You you've That's done. Right. Um, uh, Tell me about your other art endeavors, because it's super cool. I really dig these. I'm glad you reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been making these um, album cover clocks for quite a while now, maybe, you know, eight years or so. Seems yeah. like a long time. And um, I got that idea from when I was in San Francisco back in the 90s. Uh, I went to this little record shop one time, and they have these clocks made out of albums. And I bought this Frank Sinatra We Small Hours clock, and it's still hanging here in my office right now. I'm looking at it. And for many years, I would look at that thing and I think, you know, I need, 
I wonder if I could make those. There's no reason I couldn't. I just yeah. kind of deconstructed it. It's like, okay, I see they cut the covers out. They mounted it on foam board, drilled a hole, put some a clock movement in there. I said, I can do this. <laughs> so, so like around 2010, I think it was, I started messing around with it and just kind of had a wish list. And I thought, well, I'll do some Tiki clocks, Exotica. I'll do some Sinatra. I'll do the Beatles. I'll kind of cover all the bases. It went pretty well. We started selling them at craft shows. I developed a website and sold them. And then I sold them on eBay and we did shows for a long time. And they still sell, you know, here and there. I'm not pushing them as much, but um, a lot of people have gotten them as gifts and things. Well, I've got my I've got my Dino Latino one in in, in oh, my yeah. living room. That's right. The <laughs> one that looks like he's got a pizza on his shoulder. Yes, that's yeah. one of my favorite <laughs> Dean Martin record covers. I love that one. Yeah, it's still something fun, and I got I got a little bit of a pushback from some people on Facebook, some of the hardcore record collector types. <laughs> they were like, "What are you doing to those album covers?" Yeah. And I said, hey, man, relax, relax. I said, I'm, I'm only, I don't do anything that's too rare. I mean, I'm a record collector myself. But, you know, like something like Martin Denny's Quiet Village. Yeah. There's probably, you know, a million of them. Oh, yeah. They were oppressed. And you can find them in any thrift store. In fact, I probably have 20 of them here. The Herb Albert Whipped Cream album, I've got like 20 of those. Oh, yeah. So... You know, you're not putting something really rare and valuable into a clock. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't just destroy a cover. <laughs> so I think I quieted those those people down. I said, hey, I'm a record collector, too. I'm not doing this to desecrate album covers. It's just kind of a neat thing to to be able to display it instead of, you know, I've, just like you probably do. I have a huge vinyl collection, several hundred yeah. records. And, you, you know, you can't see them when they're on a shelf. But when you've got some of them up, but that's, that's a neat thing that I started, like I said, based on this Frank Sinatra clock from many years ago. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's fun. I've got too many records. I've, I've collected too many. My wife's (laughs) mad at me because I, I have the whole dining room table full of albums and (laughs) things. (laughs) Join the club. (laughs) So Darren, I want to thank you for joining us here at the quiet village. I want to remind everybody you can check out, uh, Darren Long's music, meet the Tiki delights, which is one of his, that was the first record, right? That's right. Meet the Tiki lights. You can check it out. Darrenlong.com. So you got your own.com as well as be sure and get a copy of this book. Omni Hut celebrating Tennessee's Tiki Treasure, which you can buy. I believe you can also get it on Amazon, right? You can get it on my site and you can get it on Amazon as well. Yeah. Okay. It looks really cool. And I have to get a copy of this thing too because it, it, it's <laughs> neat because I didn't know a thing about the Omni Hut, sadly. And uh, it's. It's fascinating to me. All right, Darren, I want to thank you for joining us here at the Quiet Village. Mahalo and aloha. Thank you, Mark, for the invitation. I really appreciate it. All right. Laura. Big thanks to Darren Long for joining us here. I'm going to leave you with one of Darren's tunes from his second Tiki Delights album, actually featuring yours truly. The album is called Swank, and this is a really loungy tune, really fun. I'm on vibe, so I am biased. Uh, It's a great tune called Cosmopolitan, so we're going just a little over time here. I'm going to close out with Darren Long 
and his Tiki Delights band doing uh, an original composition called Cosmopolitan. Until next time, everybody, check us out on digitiki.com. You can listen to streaming Tiki Music 24-7 on Quiet Village Radio anytime. Until next time, everyone, aloha. Thank you.